You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. This week, we're hearing stories about animals and the sounds they make. A few years ago, Danny's grandma heard something in her roof. I think it was actually my auntie who heard it first and then was telling my grandma, like, there's something moving around in your roof. She said, no, 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 there's no way anything could get in there. But then... I had the electrician out. This is Danny's grandma. And he was up on the roof and he said, oh, there's a huge carpet snake um, skin up here. We're, like, potentially talking about enough snake skin to, like, make a handbag. It was really big. And he was, like, a snake hunter and was like, oh, I want to find this snake. And so my grandma was like, um, okay, but he couldn't find it. He looked all around. He said, it's gone. But then my grandma started getting some phone calls. I lived opposite the bowling club. It's a small town. Everyone knows each other. So all the locals at the bowling club, they would look across the road and, you know, they they know that's her house. So she started getting these calls. People rang me up and said they could see this huge snake that was extended across the driveway. And I saw it. It was a huge carpet snake. And it was right across the driveway. It was so long. And so that was like the, oh, that must be the snake that was making the noises in the roof. So, yeah, this huge snake in the driveway. Um, It started then to appear each morning on the front steps. Every day it would come out from behind the rocks and sunbake in the sun on the concrete outside my front door. So the snake would just be hanging out there, Soaking up some rays, as snakes do, because they're reptiles, cold-blooded. Was your grandma scared of the snake? Not really. She grew up on a farm, so these kinds of things don't really phase her that much. It didn't worry me, because I knew they, they weren't poisonous. I don't like snakes, but I didn't worry me. didn't seem in a huge rush um to do anything about it honestly didn't didn't seem that phase she was she was quite chill about the whole thing until it did cause a problem so my grandma she had this green frog a big green frog actually it used to jump up on the sill of my uh, my windowsill um when I was going to bed and just look at me every night so yeah, there's this super cute frog. The snake is still appearing every now and again at this point. And one night, uh, I don't remember this, but apparently the snake got the frog. Like, ate it? Yeah. That's what my grandma said. Snake ate the frog. Oh my gosh. And how did... How did your grandma know the snake had eaten the frog? Did it just disappear or? Yeah, she said it was the noise. Terrible screaming. It was really, really horrible. It was actually 
I still remember it was worse than... I can't even think of what it could be like because it was horrible because the thing was petrified as it was going down the throat. So it was only at that point that she was like thinking, I've got to do something about this snake. Actually, I, I want to get rid of this snake. <laughs> I don't want it. I don't want this snake staying in my house anymore. So at that point, after the frog incident, she called wires. And the gentleman who came out was from the National Park. And he, and he t- came along and he said to me, is the snake still around? I said, go up the steps and you'll see it. It's sunbaking up there. So he went up and there was the snake waiting for him. And he just picked it up behind the back of the neck. And he said, it is a big one, isn't it? He said, it's two and a half metres at least long. And he measured it out with his arms right out. And anyway, then he started to tell me a few things about the snake. He told her that a bite from a carpet snake never heals. (laughs) Yeah, so I asked her... When the wise man told you this, did you think maybe you should have called wires sooner? I did. I did. Especially as I, I, as I thought of the poor frog. Yes. <laughs> the wise man told her this, that, you know, the bites, they don't heal if you get bitten by one of these guys. He also took a look at the snake and told her that this snake was a nesting snake. So he could take it away. But if the snake had decided that my grandma's home was his home, then the snake's going to be back. Took him way up the other end of the the beach, which was 12 kilometres of beach, and he took him right up there. And I said, can't you take him further away? And he said, no, because I don't want to cross roads. And it might kill the snake. I didn't say anything. (laughs) So anyway, sure enough, three years later, my neighbours rang and said, guess what? We can see the snake. It's coming. It's coming back. We can see it coming through the grass. It's heading straight for your house. (laughs) (laughs) And by this stage, the snake was a lot bigger as well. The snake at this point is like more than three metres long. (laughs) And (laughs) apparently they could see that it had huge teeth. Which is wild. I wouldn't even, like, think of snakes having teeth. I guess they do, but it's not a visual I'd ever thought of before my grandma was telling me this story of her neighbour calling up and saying, oh, I can see its teeth. It's got huge teeth. Oh, my gosh. Um, so her neighbour put the hose on it to try to get it to go away. And it took a while, but he managed to get him to go over the fence and he was so big that he was over and there was still about half of him was over the fence and the other half and he still touched the bottom of the the ground. He was so big. And but the, the fence must have been six, at least, it, least two, uh, two metres. Two metres. Probably not quite two metres. They used to be what they call six feet, which is just under two metres. And so it was a big snake. 
And that's actually the last that anyone saw of the snake. So the house has been sold. My grandma's moved to Sydney to be closer to our family. So who knows what's happened to that snake? Um, I mean, it is a bit of an upsetting story. I get Mm. sad thinking about the frog because no one actually told me what had happened to the frog. I was maybe 10 when this all happened. Mm. I was still in primary school Mm. and I loved the frog and I was asking, what's happened to the frog? Where's the frog? Where's the frog gone? And both my mom and my grandma didn't tell me the truth. They were like, oh, the frog's probably just hopped along to a new house. I'm sure the frog's fine. Uh, and it was only recently that I found out the truth, that I was told that my grandma had heard this very upsetting sound late at night, which she knew straight away what it was. But yeah, I guess that's just the sounds of nature. (laughs) And even though it's upsetting, it's important to listen. It is important to listen. In our first story, Jacinta finds out what we can learn listening to frogs. When I go for a walk, I constantly have my headphones in, listening to either music or some kind of news podcast. But I have a friend, Tessa, and she never wears headphones. Instead, she listens out for birds, frogs, and even the occasional seal on her walks along the Yarra River. When I'm going for a walk, I listen out for animals, so I don't like listening to other things because then I can't hear the birds or the skinks or, like, the rustling in the grass or the full of frogs. I think Tessa might have a soft spot for skinks because that's what she was studying when she was at university. But now she works with me, writing about science. Every Sunday during lockdown, the two of us go for a long walk and she points out animals I would never have seen on my own. Um, My favourite bird is probably the gangan cockatoo. Um, They were around in Eltham when I was growing up, so I just learned to recognise them from a very early age because of their strange, very distinct, croaky voice. And um, they used to come down to my primary school um, and they they would eat the tree, um, the seeds in the trees. Um, And yeah, so I used to know how to like find them pretty easily. I can imagine baby Tessa like just going and like searching for gang gang cockatoos. That's amazing. That's what I that's what I would do at primary school. (laughs) Like I would hear the croak and I'd go running after like try and find where they were. (laughs) That's so good. Um, and my favourite frog is, is the Pobblebonk, and I just love the sound they make. Can you do a little, like, oh, rendition no. of what they make? <laughs> I'm sure you can uh, insert the actual sound. <laughs> give it, give us a shot. Do it. I think asking someone their favourite frog when they're obsessed with frogs in general is really, really hard. This is Jodie Rowley. She's a curator of amphibian and reptile conservation biology at the Australian Museum and the University of New South Wales. She really likes frogs. 
I think for me it varies depending on what frog happens to be in front of me uh, and, and maybe where I am. So I'm particularly partial to the good old green tree frog. Uh, so big sort of chunky green frogs that almost don't care whether you're around them or not. You know, they've got so much character and they can live for more than 30 years. So today I'm going to go with the green tree frog. This is the sound of a green tree frog, by the way. But you might not have recognised it. Even Tessa couldn't place the frog species when I made her listen to the recording. It's one of the only frogs you might be more likely to see than hear. But Jody has green tree frogs in her mind at the moment for a different reason. Recently, along the east coast of Australia, there's been a huge mass die-off of frogs, many of which are the iconic green tree frog. In the two weeks before our phone call, Jody had individually gone through 1,300 emails from people providing information about dead or sick frogs. Many of the emails included photos of their limp, green bodies. It's a really sad time right now for me. It's been incredibly depressing, but it's been amazing how many people across particularly Eastern Australia have been taking the time to report what they're saying. And what we're seeing is huge numbers of frogs, uh, sick and dying, uh, we, you know, most of them are actually, and potentially that's why my favourite frog at the moment is the green tree frog. Most most of the frogs that we're seeing are green tree frogs, whether that's because they tend to be the ones in your house or, or whether they are more affected than, than others, we're not really sure at this stage. Jody told me it's still too early to know how many frogs are likely to be affected or even what's causing it. But she has a hunch. First, let's go back a bit. It's the 1980s, and frog scientists are worried. Every time they head out into the field, it seems like a new area of the forest is missing the croaking of frogs. There are no dead bodies. They're seemingly just gone. Usually, it's pretty unlikely that you'd come across a dead frog. Frogs are incredibly adept at hiding, and when they die, their watery bodies quickly decompose. What you would be likely to notice after a die-off event is silence. Can you take me back to those early days before we knew what was causing the decline? Was it scary? Like, what was what was it like to not know what was going on? Yeah, people were really worried because, um, yeah, it was this big mystery about why frogs were disappearing from, from our most protected areas. This is Lee Berger, a research fellow at Melbourne Uni and an expert on frog diseases. For what it's worth, her favourite frog is also the green tree frog. I called her from her home in Geelong. So most of the extinctions have, have occurred in high altitude um, protected mountain areas, so rainforest areas or alpine areas, and there was no obvious reason why, yeah, why things should disappear in, in these areas. And, and so yeah, people were nervous about what, you know, what was going on and where we're going to be next. Well, we, as in like, as in... Like humans, like it might pass from frogs to humans. Yeah, well, they didn't know it was a disease. They thought it was some some environmental change that we couldn't detect. In 1998, as a 28 year old PhD student, Lee discovered what was causing the devastation. It was a type of ancient fungus. Uh, we suspect it might be a combination of a disease that frogs have been battling it out for decades called chytridiomycosis. It's caused by a type of fungus, the amphibian chytrid fungus, which infects the skin of frogs. And the skin in frogs is like their Achilles heel. You know, they breathe through it, they drink through it. So when something really disrupts the way that their skin works, uh, then they can die quite rapidly. 
the fungus is a horrible way to go for a frog. Once it gets into a waterway, whole populations of frogs can go from fine to dead in a few days. The fungus uses spores that have tiny tails to enter the skin. Then it replicates and replicates, building up in those top layers of skin. This eventually stops frogs from being able to drink, regulate their temperatures, or even breathe. Eventually, the spores release themselves into the environment, looking for the next victim. The fungus was called the most devastating wildlife disease ever known. Researchers would visit a site that was normally uncomfortably loud with frog croaks, only to find it deathly quiet. Lee is modest about her work on Citrid, suggesting that her then-supervisor, Rick Spear, was just too busy, and so she ended up doing the work herself. But she was at the forefront of the research into the disease, and it was her who ended up discovering that the fungus was causing the disease. Yeah, Rick, Rick actually thought it might be a, a virus because you don't see a lot of damage to the skin when you pick up a frog. He just took one skin sample and that happened to be he chose a spot on the back and the chytrid fungus is mainly on the, on the bellies. After looking at frog diseases from around Australia and taking more samples from the dead frog's bellies, Lee started to suspect what was causing the decline. But although citrid was present in a lot of these cases, the fungus is not known to cause disease elsewhere. Maybe it was just harmlessly hitching a ride with the frogs and something else was to blame. And we, we got the impression that it, that it was a, a new and um, pathogenic disease, but we still weren't sure it was the cause of the deaths in the wild until we did an infection experiment where we took some shedding skin from some sick frogs and put it in the water of healthy frogs. And then when they got sick within a few weeks, yeah, that was when we, we knew that um, that these little round spores in the skin was, was, was a fatal disease and likely causing that decline in the wild. So was there backlash at the time for you going, this weird fungus that we've never really seen before is causing this environmental decline all over the world? Yeah, when we, when we first came out and we were the only ones saying it, people, people didn't believe it and that's, that's pretty normal when you, when you come out with something surprising. Um, and so, yeah, it was only over, over the next decade, really, that more and more people worked on it, the more experiments done. You'd see this um, build, big build-up in infection and then populations would go. And so after you know, a, few, a few studies like that and people realised that, that we were right, that it was this fungus alone just arriving that was enough to wipe out, wipe out a species. Lee is still studying the fungus and its effects on frogs 20-something years later. For a disease identified in the 90s, it's hard to overstate just how much of frog biology is still tied in with the citrid fungus, especially in Australia. There are around six species of frogs that are critically endangered due to citrid. The southern corroboree frog, for instance, a striking black and yellow frog that lives only in the southern tablelands of Australia, is one of Australia's most endangered species. The vast majority of the few frogs that are left live in breeding facilities, as citrid devastates their populations whenever they're re-released to the world. Lee is currently working on a way to increase their immunity to the fungus, a bit like a frog vaccine. Technologies like frog vaccines sound exciting, but it's hard not to think about all the frogs we've already lost. The ponds that have fallen silent in the decades it's taken to get to this point. Tessa has lived along the Yarra River her whole life, and she's noticed the decline too. 
One of the lakes that I used to go to near my parents' place has um, used to have a whole heap of frogs there and there's something's changed in the water quality in the last few years and the last few times I've gone there it's been very quiet so I really don't like it. I don't like it at all. You know, it's really timely. Frogs have had this pandemic that they've been battling with for sort of three decades and it does take a toll on their population. So it caused the decline in extinction or was sort of one of the primary drivers of that for hundreds of species around the world, at least four species in Australia. And we kind of, I guess, forget about it a, li- a little bit in some ways. But this new mass extinction of frogs has put citrid back in the spotlight. Jody is quick to point out that we're not sure yet if it's citrid but the alternative is actually much worse. Frogs do not need anything more to deal with than they have at the moment. I I get emails from people, older people, telling me of how many frogs there used to be around the place regularly, you know, and it's heartbreaking. There are frogs in Australia that I will never, ever get to see because they're extinct, and and that is so sad. But I guess it is kind of abstract as as well. You know, I've never known there to be the frogs that there's meant to be uh, around the place and the diversity of frogs. So I kind of joined the fight to save frogs when they were already less than, than what they were. When I started writing this story, I had no idea about the extent of citrid and how much damage it is still causing to this day. There's no cure. No way to stop the ancient fungus slowly spreading down riverways and streams. But there are ways that you and I can tangibly help frog researchers. As well as being curator of amphibian and reptile conservation biology, Jody is the lead scientist on a project called Frog ID that asks regular people to take recordings of frogs when they hear them. Frog ID was started, uh, I guess, almost four years ago. It's all based around the fact that frogs call and we all have smartphones in our pocket. So it's a free app and whenever you hear a frog call, uh, you just record it. Uh, Each species has a unique call, so you don't have to see the frog, so it gets all these little secretive hiding frogs out there. Uh, And then the call submitted to a team at the Australian Museum, including myself, where we actually listen to every single recording and identify the frogs that are calling. Uh, So there could be up to 13 species calling on one recording, which is pretty amazing, and that's my idea of frog heaven. So over the course of of four years, almost four years, we've got over 400,000 records of frogs across Australia thanks to people out there just pressing record. And it has revolutionised our understanding of frogs. It's absolutely amazing. When I open the app, next to a big record button, there's also a list of frog calls you can explore, all lovingly collected from frog enthusiasts around Australia. Here is the bilingual froglet. And this one is a southern barred frog. Jodie explains that some people go out of their way to map frogs all across the city, while some people record infrequently or just once. But each data point helps them tell a story about Australia's frogs. It doesn't matter if it's if it's common or not. And the other thing is we people often think, oh, you've got that frog, that's a common frog, you don't care about that, or I recorded that last week, you don't want it again. It's literally the same frog that's calling. We're like, no, 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 we do, like every day, because not only is, is Frog Idea helping us understand where frogs are, it's also helping us understand when frogs breed, when they're, they're calling, you know, the impact of change, uh, how they respond to weather and climate. And so to get these repeat recordings over time, it's really, really interesting. Valuable. And of course, because
because frog calls are uh, male frogs calling to attract females and it's an indication that they want to breed. So it's not quite an indication that they you know, actually have tadpoles that they successfully do recruit, but it is a really great sort of proxy for that. So it allows us to understand you know, when frogs are trying to breed and if we hear silence, frogs aren't breeding, that's for sure. Many of us are pretty bad at listening to the sounds around us. How often do we even think about frogs unless we're listening to them or looking straight at one? But with bushfires, lockdowns and mass die-offs, frog researchers could really use the help. We are thinking that frog ID is also going to be vital. I mean, particularly for green tree frogs, we know where most of the reports are coming from. So we've got, we'll have almost four years of data before this this die-off event. And so the real test will be to see particularly in spring when a lot of the species that we're getting reported dying now are meant to start calling, will will they? <laughs> will it be as much as previous years? Will there be places where we no longer hear the croaks of the green tree frog? We honestly don't know. But frog ID is going to be key at understanding the impacts across such a wide scale, and particularly when we may be stuck, uh, the scientists may be stuck at home for a little while still. And so, I went for a walk with Tessa. No headphones, no podcasts, just listening out for the sounds of frogs to record. Where do you want to go? Yeah, let's go frogs. Let's do frogs. I'm excited. Is that because it's flooding? Let's go look. Should we go look? Do you think it's more than one species? How many frogs? Uh, a few. <laughs> I can never tell. There's at least three, four, five, six, ten. Ten. I hope there's plenty of lady frogs too. Yeah. That story was produced by Jacinta Bowler. Maddie McQueen was the supervising producer. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Brony Peters. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pay you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our next story, Gay hears the cries of a wild animal. And she's forced to do something she thought she'd never do. And heads up, This story contains graphic references. About 15 years ago, I woke up one Sunday morning to this terrifying animal scream. It woke me out of a sleep. I couldn't recognise the sound. I knew it wasn't a pig because they would squeal. And we had had goats and I knew the sound of a 
goat being attacked and it wasn't a goat. But it was up on top of the escarpment so I noted it and didn't really worry. Anyway, I got up and um, I was just about to get in the shower when my dog Brutus, who incidentally is 19 years old now, deaf and blind, Brutus was barking hysterically on the veranda. So I rush out there and he was facing off with this huge animal. It had claws about an inch long. It was taller than I was and it had shoulders on it like a man. And that was the animal that I'd heard because it was wounded. It was a rock wallaby, a wallaroo, sorry, and it had had its balls ripped off by dingoes. And it was trapped on my veranda by my dog. Now, my dog's a fox terrier and... And I, tr- I, I don't know if anyone knows fox terriers, but you cannot call them off. I was screeching at him and trying to get, call him off so that the animal could escape off the veranda. Anyway, I picked up the broom and I threw it at the dog. He moved out of the road and it allowed the animal to escape out into the yard. But he pursued it vigorously and um, I ran after them, still trying to call him off all the time. And on the way, I picked up the broom that I'd thrown. And um, the next time they faced each other was in a half-built building. And I got there just as the Wallaroo scooped Brutus up in its big muscular arms. And I'd heard stories about these big animals that that could disembowel a dog. And it 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 was trying to, you know, it was a wounded animal. It was trying to kill him. So I had the broom in my hand and I went up behind him and I hit him on the head. Anyway, he dropped the dog and then he spun around on his tail and reared up. And fortunately for me, there was, it was a half-built building and there was building materials and there was a piece of form ply leaning up against a pole. And I just grabbed it and I hid behind it. And, and, I, and I felt like, you know, Tom and Jerry in a cartoon. You know, I was hoping that the animal didn't have the brains to peek around the corner and see me. Anyway, the dog kept barking at it and distracted it and um, took the attention away from me. So I took the opportunity to go over to the house and I got my 410 shotgun and I loaded it with a solid cartridge. I had some shot there, but I knew that a shot wouldn't kill such a big animal. And by that time, they'd sort of gravitated out under the lemon tree. I went up behind it. And I'm not a very good shot, I have to tell you. I'm not bad with a shotgun, but not with a solid. So I went quite close behind it, hoping to God that I wouldn't miss. But by that time, I was shaking and, you know, stressed out. So I got very close to it and I shot it in the head and it dropped down dead at my feet. And then I had this, you know, huge animal and I I was quite stressed and, and I thought, oh, I have to tell someone. So I rang Jack up. And Jack's a friend of mine and he's a bushman and if I know anything about the bush and it's only because of Jack. So I rang Jack up and he answered the phone. I go, oh, Jack, I've just killed this little, you know, stressing out and what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And he goes, "Um, well, you may as well get the tail off it (laughs) for the dogs. So I go, oh, okay, okay. So I go back over. Now the, the butt of the tail is probably as big as my calf. You know, it's a big animal. So I managed to get the tail off. But then I still had this huge animal, it's probably weighing 60 kilos, that I had to dispose of. So I thought, oh, well, I may as well, I may as well take the legs for the dog meat as well. <laughs> so I took the legs off 
And then I managed to manoeuvre the, the rest of the carcass to the back of the ute, covered in blood and gore I was. And then I, I thought, oh, I'll take it up to an old um, gravel pit up the road and let the crows and eagle hawks feast on it. And then I looked down at myself and I thought, oh, shit, I better put some clothes on first. <laughs> that story was written and read by Gay Lawrence and was told as part of the Pine Creek Gold Rush Festival. You can find this story and more at Spun Stories, a live storytelling event in Darwin showcasing extraordinary stories from the Northern Territory. Spun also has a podcast. Just search for Spun Stories wherever you get your podcasts. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Emma Pham is our social media producer. Our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova and Wing Kwong is the All The Best mentee producer. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au and you can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Bruni peters Thanks for listening.